But here we are today, we're continuing this quarter's study on Steps to Christ and using that small booklet as a companion guide to our series. And again, if you don't have a copy of that book or you need one or want one for someone else, they are available at our resource desk as you leave today, free of charge, of course. But uh, we've looked at how God truly loves us and that our need is for Christ in our lives for both pardon for our sin and power for victorious living in the future. In a spirit of genuine repentance, hopefully we've confessed whatever sins might be between the Lord and ourselves and made things right between our fellow man and ourselves. And now we turn our attention to what goes next, going forward, pushing on in the future. How does the personal revival and reformation of repentance and confession and starting things off right with God and each other continue as we go forward in our daily life? The chapter title and the message title today is Consecration. How do we devote our lives to him going forward? But before we begin any study, of course, let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for just allowing us to have any life at all, and particularly this Sabbath day of rest and fellowship and worship and of ministry. And Lord, as we study your word now, we claim the promise that you would lead us into all truth if we were to ask by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we expect great things. Lord, let us be teachable. It's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would, please go to the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. We're going to look at the Apostle Paul's counsel to the church at Philippi. And as you're finding Philippians chapter 2, I want to lay out some principles that we're going to be developing in our message today. Some basic premises will be the foundation of our study. First of all, it is important to understand that the maintenance of a growing Christian experience is not passive. Expecting God to simply carry us effortlessly through, effortlessly through each day. It's not a passive thing where we come to Christ, we accept his salvation, we repent of all of our sins, and now we say, Lord, I'm yours. We close our eyes. We just let him do his thing. It's not passive. There's an active agent for us to do, something that we're supposed to do. As Paul left the church in Philippi, he urged them to maintain their standing with Christ, looking now at 1 Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13. Notice what his counsel is. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Notice he's saying, I'm leaving and you're going to be on your own now. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to do for his good pleasure. Let's break down his counsel here. Clearly, Paul taught that there is something of an ongoing work of obedience committed to us. He says, you work it out, right? But in the same breath, he explains that it is only by the power of God that we'll even want to or be able to accomplish his will. So it's not like we're saying, Lord, I'm taking over from here, I'm on my own, nor are we saying, Lord, you take over here and I'm going to stand back and watch, Apparently, we work it out through the power of God in our daily lives. Does that make sense? Okay, now, 
The misconception, prevalent as it is, and appealing as it may sound, at least at first, that once I give myself to God, He will then simply take over. And all tough decisions are on Him. All changes are on Him. Everything is, well, it is through His power, but it's through our cooperation with His power. Let me explain something. Everything that we do is a choice. Everything we do, we choose to do. Choice, this, this, this independence of thought, this free moral agency, is the greatest gift and at the same time the greatest responsibility the Lord has entrusted each of us with. He gives us the power akin to that of our Creator, power to think and power to do. You can look at a situation, evaluate it through the discernment of God's Word and the Holy Spirit, know what the right thing is, and then through the power of God, choose to do the right. But the choice is ours. Everything we do is a choice. Now, God and Satan both do all they can to influence those choices, right? God sends his Holy Spirit to knock on the heart's door, to awaken conscious, to convict of sin, and Satan sends his evil angels to send forth temptations and distractions and discouragements, and there's an influence struggle, but the decision of who wins is ours. Disobedience and obedience is ultimately and finally our responsibility. The one choice, now follow me here, the one choice that we cannot make is the choice not to choose. Does that make sense? The only choice unavailable to us is the choice not to choose. Because even in not choosing, that is a choice, yes? By not choosing to get up and go today, I am choosing to stay in bed. Right? Everything that we do is a choice. And that choice is left to us throughout our Christian experience. Every day, this has come to us. Let's go to the book of Joshua, chapter 24. To the people of ancient Israel was given this great challenge, this poignant challenge that we read in Joshua, chapter 24. Verses 14 and 15, we read, Now therefore fear the Lord, serve Him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt, serve the Lord. Now I want you to notice this. In his call to serve the Lord, apparently there's an active role for them to do to put away the other gods, right? It's not just saying, I choose the Lord, and then you go back home and everything's still the same. He said, no, no, no. If you're going to choose the Lord, it takes some active participation with you to put away the other things, right? Again, we'll read again. Now, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and in truth, and put away the gods which your father served on the other side of the river and in Egypt. Serve the Lord. And then he goes on to say in verse 15, and if it seems evil to you, Right? If you look at the situation and say, you know what, it seems painful, it seems unappealing, unattractive, uninviting to follow the Lord, then don't. But that's your choice. right? If it seems evil to you to serve the Lord, then what does he say to do? Choose. Choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods which your father served that were on the other side of the river, or the gods of the Amorites, in the land who in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
Notice he's saying, I'm making a choice, our household is making this choice, and you have the same choice. I can't make it for you, and just because the rest of the congregation might choose one way, the choice is yours individually. And that choice dwindles down to active, daily, small changes, one way or the other, for or against the Lord. But the Lord wants us to choose. He will not come in, move us over, and start making all the decisions for us. As much as that sounds appealing, Think of how that strikes at the heart of the great controversy. Christ wants to empower us, to strengthen us, but he wants the choice to still be ours, the actions to still be in our daily lives. Notice this, Steps to Christ, page 43. God does not force the will of his creatures. He cannot accept an homage that is not willingly and intelligently given. A mere forced submission would prevent all real development of mind and character. Apparently, it's in our best interest that Jesus not do everything for us. Now, that sounds crazy, right? But he gives us the strength. He gives us the goal. He gives us all the resources available. But he says, now I want you to choose, and you to put in your life these changes. Why? Because it's good for us. That it actually builds character in us. It makes us stronger. It makes us grow more and more like Jesus. Again, a mere forced submission would prevent all real development of mind and character. It would make man a mere automaton. It's a robot, right? Such is not the purpose of the Creator. He invites us to give ourselves to Him that He may work His will in us. It remains for us to choose whether we will be set free from the bondage of sin to share the glorious liberty of the sons of God. Did you realize that though the power is from Christ, the choice is ours whether we want to see changes in our life? The power is from God. The calling is from God. But the choice is your own, and he will not make it for you. And that's the big picture decision whether I theoretically want to submit to Christ or if on a Tuesday I want to change how I do this one particular thing in my life. I'm going to get into that in a minute. But Jesus calls for a total surrender. And he asks us, he invites us to voluntarily, intelligently choose to surrender all to him. For instance, go to Luke chapter 14. And I want to remind you that we're going to be reading the words of Jesus himself. I'm going to read some of the strongest passages in the Bible, some of those pointed scriptures that the scripture records. And then I want you to say thank you because I don't preach that strong to you now. Okay. But anytime I do, I want the Bible to do the heavy lifting, right? This is Jesus. You're arguing with him, right? Luke chapter 14, starting with verse 25. I want you to see the context right here in verse 25. Still who page is turning. It's a beautiful sound. Luke 14, 25. Now, great multitudes went with him. And he turned and said to them. Now, before we get to what he's turning to say, notice the context. Is this just a one-on-one conversation? No. It's a small group of disciples? No. It's a large multitude. Apparently, everywhere Jesus went, a crowd followed. You see that? If he's going by the seashore, he's going to the city, he's going to a town, he's going down the road. Everywhere he goes, he picks up, he snowballs this group of people that just come along. And some of those are sincere. But you know as well as I do, just statistically speaking, not everybody is always on the same page. 
So Jesus addresses the crowd with that understanding in mind and says, I know that some of you are following me in sincerity, but some of you are just going with the flow. It's faddish, it's popular, it's easy, everybody else is doing it, but you yourself are not actively choosing, you're just kind of floating along. Now notice, he's speaking very pointedly here. If anyone, verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. My goodness. I've never made an appeal to start hating your mom. But what is Jesus saying? You should have anger towards your parents and your family? No. But he's saying you should put me first in your affections, first in your priorities, first in your decision-making. And some of you here are here not for me. You're here for mom or dad or this and that. You're just following along with the crowd. He said, if you really want to be my disciple... You've got to lay all of that aside, be willing to at least, to follow me. And goes on to explain this. Verse 27, and whoever does not bear his cross, of course the cross is that beautiful symbol of self-sacrifice, of giving of yourself, right? Does not bear his cross and come after me, cannot be my disciple. And he gives this illustration. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and do what? Count the cost. Whether he has enough to do what? Finish it. I I cannot tell you how much I love my son Henry. I love him just so much. And he started this new thing where he's always doing a building project. It always involves my tools... Always ends up involving my tools in the rain. (laughs) Lately, for the last several months, he's been working, I kid you not, on his own volition, on building the GC conference. Sometimes it's a castle. (laughs) Sometimes it's got walls. Sometimes it's got bridges. It's always elaborate. But it always ends up with my tools left in the yard. That's pretty much the end of it. So, but he, oh, he likes to talk about these big plans. Oh, it's going to have this, and it's going to have this, and, it's, and then we're going to build another building, and it's going to have an airport, and it's going to have a big, tall thing, and we're going to have people over, and we'll have a kitchen. Well, I mean, he has all these great plans, right? But what it really looks like in real life is some scattered tools and pieces and parts, and my yard's all dug up, okay? Now, he can be excused. He's four, right? But how many of our spiritual lives are similar? We have these great pie in the sky. Oh, I'm going to love the Lord. I'm going to give my whole life to I'm going to be a missionary. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But when it comes home on a Tuesday, it looks pretty much like the mess that it was before. We articulate, we vocalize, we declare these great intentions. But nothing really happens in the real life. Christ is talking to these kind of people. Sure, you're following around. It's a spiritual high. I'm sure Christ was an intriguing speaker, great storyteller, and people love to listen to his words. But will you take it home and actually do something? This is who Jesus was talking to, and he might be talking to us even today. Again, verse 28, For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it, lest after he has laid the foundation, so you got a good start, right? And is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not 
able to finish. You know, the Christian walk is intended to have an end point. You're supposed to become more and more like Christ, not just to keep having a good start over and over and over again. Many people are very good at building foundations. We might start with a great ideal. We might put a plan of action, and then it fizzles and fades. Consecration is the next step. After we've repented, after we've confessed, after we've made things right, how do I build a spiritual edifice, a tower to heaven? Go to Matthew chapter 16. Jesus, again, this time talking specifically to his closest friends, his closest associates, his disciples. Matthew chapter 16, starting with verse 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Notice this time, he doesn't just say, take up your cross. What apparently goes along with that? Deny yourself and take up the cross and follow me. And here's the counsel. Look at these beautiful principles. For whoever desires to save his life will what? Lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Notice he's saying, if you try to retain a part of your old life without surrendering at all, you're going to end up losing the whole thing. But if you're willing to give it all up, that's the, if you're willing to die, that's the only way to live. It's the great paradox of Christianity. The only way to really live is to fully die. Not just in theory, not just on paper, but in person, in the daily life, surrender all those things to Christ. Watch this now. For what profit, he puts it into transaction language, for what profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? And then we add on this verse, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father and with his angels, and then he will give, and then he will reward each according to his declarations. Is that what it says? He will reward each according to their good intentions. No. You need to have a clear objective and a high aim, but the look is like, now what did that look like in the actual life? What did you do with the thing? Did you build a tower or did you just talk about building a tower? It's the real question. Again, note his concern that we might slip into trading something of little value, temporal value, finite value, for that which is of inestimable, infinite value, eternal life with Jesus. Apparently, this is something that each of us as Christians, whether we're just new to the faith or a long time in the walk, need to keep in mind. We need to be vigilant against the carnal tendency to broker a negotiated settlement instead of offering Christ the full surrender he asks for. Christ is saying, I want you to give 100%. And we're saying, all right, I'll see your 100% and I'll counter you. I kind of approach salvation like it's a used car. I know what you're asking, but I know what I'm willing to give. And let's see what the middle point is. I'll give a little bit more and you take off a little bit on your end. We'll come up with... God's not asking for a negotiated settlement where you keep part of your old life and I'll give you this part. No, no, no. He's saying, I want you to completely die and start over. Top to bottom, every part of your daily life. All of it goes to Jesus or none of it counts at all. It's a huge concept. But what happens is, and you'll notice this, sometimes it's 
possible as we review our lives, our behavior, our affections, our, our pet indulgences, we sometimes might find ourselves thinking such thoughts as, well, God won't keep me out of heaven because of such a little thing. Or, with all the big evils in the world today, surely God doesn't care about, and we fill in the blank with whatever we happen to want to keep. We're negotiating a settlement instead of offering complete surrender. The most famous of all, is this really a salvation issue? The implication being, they're the big things that God wants, but the little things, I'll hang on to those. I'll tend to this issue myself. I'll take it over in my own time. I will, and the Lord won't really. Jesus never talked like that. He never said, come, let us reason, and how much can I give, and you give. No, 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 no. He said, I want you to see clearly what I'm asking for, and then choose this day whom you will really serve. And it will be evident in the real daily life experience. Notice this. (laughs) I have in my notes to say, think about this logically. And I realize what a ridiculous statement it is. What things do we think about illogically? It's like saying, I have a thought question for you. (laughs) Don't all questions require thought? (laughs) Okay. So I'm just going to ask you, think about this. First of all, if we're only willing to surrender the things we're comfortable surrendering, is that really surrender? No. That's just cleaning out old stuff we hadn't gotten to yet, right? That's not giving up anything. It has to be precious for it to be surrendered. And beyond this, when we begin to focus on how much we feel we're giving up, instead of, in reality, how much we're actually gaining by a walk with Christ. Our motivation for faithfulness goes from love for Christ and doing how much can I do for you till what's the least I have to do to get by and appease you, right? Instead of saying, Lord, I'm so grateful I get to gain so much, how much can I give? It becomes how much can I keep and still not be in trouble. Friends, that's not true love. It's not true love. Steps of Christ, page 44. Those who feel the constraining love of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. Now, I know you've probably had that in your experience. I'll stop picking on you. I'll pick on me. I've had that in my experience academically. You go into a classroom and you're not learning. Your first thought is not, how much can I do to get the most out of this class? You're trying to that negotiated settlement. I know I'm shooting for an A, a B, or I don't know who we are in the room, but D, whatever it is our highest goal is, right? You think, all right, here's my objective. What's the least I have to do to get right there? Instead of saying, what's the most I can get out of this class? Regardless of the reward, I just want to soak up the information. No, you're not. You're not trying to learn the stuff. You're trying to learn the teacher and how much you can get away with. That's not true love for the material. It's not true love for the course. It's not true love for the ideals and principles that are being expounded. That, my friends, is legalism. Saying, I know here's the goal, and here's what I'm willing to contribute, and you, and and it's negotiating. It's haggling. Christ has no interest in that. I'm not here to haggle. 
Christ is like, I'm here to take over. I want full surrender. Bottom line. Again, those who feel the constraining love of, for God, uh, of God do not ask how little may be given to meet the requirements of God. They do not ask for the lowest standard, but aim at perfect conformity to the will of their Redeemer. Wouldn't it be a better life to say, Lord, in this situation, what would best glorify you? How can I do the most with what I have? Obviously, you're not asking for something I don't have to offer, but Lord, what can I give you that can help you the most? And maybe even help me the most in a way I don't understand it. I'll just trust you that you say I should give it. How should I do it? Now listen to this deep thought. With earnest desire, they yield all and manifest an interest proportionate to the value of the object which they seek. Your interest is a reflection of your value that you place on the thing you're seeking for. A profession of Christ without this deep love is mere talk, dry formality, and heavy drudgery. You're just going through the motions, cranking through it, because you have to. I notice this in giving Bible studies, that big things are easy. It's the little things that are hard. Big thing. I mean, I can't tell you. I, just this last week, I had a Bible study, two weeks ago, I was having a Bible study, and a, and a gentleman who wasn't necessarily in the room, but was interested in what we was overhearing, came and sat down, and he had a question about what happens when you die. Opened up to Genesis chapter 2 and looked at verse 7 and talked about how you are a soul, you don't have a soul, and, thus, and just went through the very basic thing from one Bible text, and he was like, oh, my goodness, that... He was cool. He's like, that's poetry. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. A huge, massive concept about the state of the living and the dead. Seconds. It's like, oh, that's great. That's cool. And you can do that with the second coming. You can do that with the entire great controversy. You can do that with the cross of Christ, with creation. All these large ideas. When they're just something to view from a distance, oh, that's great. That's neat. But when those things come down, okay, now because of that, what does that look like in your daily life? How does the fact that you're physically intertwined with your soul in the fact that you are a soul and therefore you have a responsibility, you are not your own, what you do with your body is God's too. That means that what you take in is a spiritual thing. And now the Lord gets to say what you eat or what you drink. Slow down. When it's what happens to the dead, easy. When it comes to giving up pork chops, slow down. Right? Big things are easy. Little things are very hard. Big theological concepts pale in comparison to small practical duties. Things that directly affect me are the hardest of all. By the way, we never have a problem with a strong sermon as long as it's pressing on somebody else's toes. Right? But as soon as it lands home, this is the ultimate spiritual battlefield. The greatest obstacle between ourselves and Christ is ourselves. We are our own 
greatest obstacle to spiritual advancement. Put this way, Step to Christ, page 43. The warfare against self is the greatest battle that was ever fought. The yielding of self, surrendering all to the will of God, requires a struggle. Don't for a moment think that once you come to Christ that you just kind of sit back and it all just kind of takes care of itself. No. You're going to have to go home and look at your pantry. You're going to have to go home and look at your closet. You're going to have to go home and look at your bank account. You're going to have to go home and look at your entertainment. You're going to have to go home and look and choose to do something. It's a struggle. But the soul must submit to God before it can be renewed in holiness. I love this illustration. If you've heard it before, lucky you, you get to hear it again. A famous stunt man wanted to do a, a great spectacle for all to see, and he strung this wire across, you know, this Niagara Falls. And people, of course, are interested to see, surely he's not going to actually. And sure enough, he started out, and he started walking across. And that got people's attention. They came out of the restaurants and little cafes and the gift shops, and they started looking over the edge, and they see, my goodness, there's a guy walking on that little wire. And he gets out to the middle, and they're like, well, you better keep going now, right? And he, sure enough, he makes it all the way to the other side. And people are like, well, that is, that is something. That is impressive. He says, you think I can do it again? They're like, well, yeah, sure, go for it, you know? Crowd's getting bigger. And this time he heads out and he takes a few objects with him, maybe a handful of apples. He goes out carefully, carefully, and gets to the middle, stops, and does a juggling routine. And then keeps going to the other side. Crowd's getting bigger, and the cheers are getting louder. Woohoo! Man, that was fantastic. And he goes several passes back and forth. Then he gets out a wheelbarrow, right? And he puts in a sack of potatoes, and he makes it all heavy and loaded. And he keeps going back and forth, does it great. Crowds are huge at this point, cheering him on, woohoo! And he keeps, do you think I can do it? Yes, do you think I can do it? Great. He's like, now I need a volunteer. Who's going to get in? And all the cheering, crickets. I guess I need to get going. You go, go ahead. Everybody believed in theory. But when it came to your life, stepping in and saying, all right, Lord, let's do this thing together. That's where it gets hard. Same is true in the Christian life. We can come to church, hear a moving, stirring, powerful sermon. Feel the tug of the Holy Spirit. Make de- great declarations. Oh, this time it's going to be. Maybe even come down front. Maybe go get things right with each other. Do all the right things, and those are good things, but if it stops right there, it's an incomplete conversion. Because now you've got to take those declarations and put it into demonstration in the life. What does it look like? Have you actually counted the cost? Or have you just started putting out tools and making a foundation and just going to walk away? Counting the cost. Big things are easy, little things are hard. Let me show you some. Again, I told you we're going to look at some of the sharpest rebukes in Scripture, some of the most, not rebukes so much, but counsel, powerful counsel, stuff that I would be scared to say in sermons on my own if it weren't in the Scripture. Proverbs chapter 23. Look at the practical counsel here. 
most people in those days couldn't afford, wouldn't have access to the same kinds of luxuries and delicacies and food items that we have available to us today. You know, if, if I wanted to right now, well, I wouldn't break the Sabbath to start with, but even if it was on a Tuesday, if I wanted to leave this spot right now, I can get any time of the day or night as much food, drink, and whatever I want with a very little exchange on my part. I can become, whew, I could live a life full of physical pleasures, right? Carnal things. Easy. Not everyone always had that opportunity. It wasn't like they had a McDonald's around every corner 2,000 years ago. But the rulers, the kings, the nobles, the royalty did have that kind of access. And the counsel is given. If you ever have occasion to eat with them, look at this counsel. Chapter 23, verse 1. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, what's that next word? Consider. What does that mean? Think. Right? Consider carefully what is before you. Now, you might look into that, ooh, and your eyes get big, and then your mouth gets big, and your hands start moving, and you eat the whole thing up. He said, no, 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 before you do that, think. Okay? And then look at the counsel, verse 2. And put a knife to your throat if you're a man given to appetite. If you know that's your weakness, and you walk into that situation and thinking you're going to be fine on your... He said, you need to do some very practical, immediate, tangible steps to keep you out of trouble. So as soon as one hand picks up that nice, jelly-filled, glazed piece of delicate, what the next verse calls deceptive food, the other hand, get that knife, <laughs> and the closer this one comes, the closer this one comes, right? Now, why would he say that? Is he saying, now, if you're, if you're about to overeat, kill yourself. Is that what he's saying? No, but make some practical, tangible limits. Put some, some, some safeguards in place so that when that thing comes up, you'll be ready for it so that when you sit down, you're going to think about it and you're going to have a practical plan of escape or a reminder or a way out. Matthew chapter 5, Jesus picks up on the same type of thinking. People might say, oh, that was the Old Testament God. <laughs> Let's look at the New Testament Jesus Christ, who, by the way, is the Old Testament Jesus Christ. Amen. Christ says in verse 17, Do not think that I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but to do what? Fulfill it. I'm here to show you what it looks like in life. And then he gives practical counsel about these big ideas and what it looks like in the real life. Remember, he starts with murder. He says, You've heard it said, don't murder, which, of course, we shouldn't murder. But I say to you, don't even be angry with your brother in your heart, right? goes down to practical. Now he goes on to verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Okay? So he says the law is deeper than just the actions. It's the motive behind it. It's what's the root in the inside and the heart. And then he gives some practical counsel. How do you avoid trouble? Verse 28, uh, 29. If your right eye causes you to sin... Pluck it out and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. You've never heard me make that appeal, right? But Jesus does. Look at the next verse. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and cast it from you. For it is more profitable for you that one of your members perish than for your whole body to be cast into hell. Now, the Bible talks about 
putting a knife to your throat, plucking out your eye, cutting off your hand. I don't know that the Lord intends for us to go around physically maimed or dead. However, there should be a common sense application of this in our lives. If you're prone to something that could lead you to trouble, don't just close your eyes and hope everything's going to be fine and just keep going like normal. He says, no, 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 make some changes ahead of time to safeguard the avenues of the soul. Be practical in your application of spiritual principles. Okay? Now, I don't know what the thing, things are in your life that you need to pluck out or cut off or put a knife to in your situation, but for instance, if you struggle with wasting time watching idle, horrible, immoral television, A, you could start with some limits on yourself about, all right, I won't watch this, I won't that. But wouldn't it be simpler just to throw the thing out? Like, oh, yeah, but that's radical. I don't want to do... We're negotiating a settlement. Just get rid of it. If you know that having 24-7 high-speed Internet access to all kinds of filth is bad for you, just cancel the subscription. Like, oh, I, don't know. I might have to study that a little bit more. I'm not sure. See what I'm saying? We negotiate. I have a hard time with my daily devotions. If that's your thing, what are some practical ways you can do? Sit down and count the cost. If I aim for a life of daily Bible study and prayer, what will it take to actually make that happen? Or am I just hoping that Jesus will miraculously do it for me? No. You're going to have to start going to bed earlier. You're like, man, to go to bed early, that means I've got to get this done earlier. Yep. And that means I've got to move this thing. Yep. And that means the whole day is going to have to start. Yes. You're going to have to recalibrate, adjust, pluck out some things in order for that to be there, if that's what you truly want. Decisions in and of themselves are fine, but if they don't come with concrete follow-through, tangible, practical plans to actually see it through, then you're just the guy daydreaming of towers but not counting the cost. Is that making sense? So a life of consecration, now that you've surrendered to God, you recognize his love, you recognize your need for him, you've repented of, of, of those sins, you've genuinely confessed, and now you're starting clean. How can you be sure? How can you take practical steps to make sure that the future doesn't look like the past? It's called counting the cost, full surrender. And this is the next step in our steps to Christ. What would it look like in your life? And I can't answer that for you. But this week, I'm going to leave that challenge with you. What would it look like, these grand high spiritual ideals, in order for them to be realized in your life? Again, you're not doing the conversion. The Lord's doing that through you, but he says, now cooperate with me. Pluck out. Cut off. Put a knife to the whatever. What does it look like to count the cost to build a tower that will be finished. Now, by the way, when we talk about cutting things out of the life or putting limits on ourselves or readjusting our schedules or readjusting our finances, by the way, we could do the same thing with time. We could do it with money, could we not? Lord, I want to return a faithful tithe and give generous offerings, but you know I just can't right now. Why not? Have you even looked at your budget? Do you even know where your money goes? Does Taco Bell get more gotten money than God? 
I mean, I don't know. I'm just making something up. <laughs> but look at your finances. Actually sit down and look. What would it take for me to be faithful in my tithes and offerings? Not just hoping it'll happen, but concretely, carefully consider, and then act. Choose whom I'm going to serve. The little things are the hardest. Now, sometimes, again, when we think about making these kinds of decisions, making these kind of commitments, a full consecration, we realize it's going to take some adjustment, and yes, it will take some surrendering of stuff that to us seems precious. It might be health habits like smoking or drinking or over, whatever the thing is. And we think, oh, I'm giving up this instead of looking at what I'm gaining by letting that stuff go. Wouldn't it be better to breathe free and not have to have such high risk for cancer? Wouldn't it be nice to have a longer, healthier life? And it wouldn't be nice to have a body that can be of service to God better than what may currently be the case. Sure, we're giving this up, but it wasn't good for us anyway. This is better. Short temper. What if you gave that up? People might start liking you more. What a great problem to have. Foul mouth. Maybe people would want to be around you. Isn't that great? By the way, wouldn't it be nice to live without a guilty conscience if you gave some of that stuff up? Could sleep a little better at night? Could breathe a little easier? Could rest a little bit fuller? <sighs> Maybe your thing is dress and jewelry. And, I mean, who knows what the thing is? But if that vanity, what if that insecurity were just kind of done? And you could live a life that's just simpler, clearer conscience, healthier, happier and of more service to God. Christ said, I came to give you life and to give it how? More abundantly. In our short-sightedness, in our sinfulness, we think we're living it up when we're actually settling for something so, so small. I love this passage. We're going to close with this today. Steps of Christ, page 46. God does not require us to give up anything that it, is our, that it is for our best interest to retain. God's never, God's never going to ask you to take something out of your life that was actually good for your life. In all that he does, he has the well-being of his children in view. Would that all who have not chosen Christ might recognize that he has something vastly better to offer them than they are seeking for themselves. Friends, whatever yourself wants for you isn't actually good for you. But what Christ wants is of inestimable value. Do you actually trust him enough to climb in the wheelbarrow and say, Lord, I'm yours. Let's go home and look at the calendar. Let's go home and look at the finances. Let's go home and make practical steps. No more negotiated settlement. I surrender all. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.